It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here live on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we've got a very important show uh, regarding nonprofit boards for you today. As the announcer said, you can call in uh, to 347-324-3080 if you have questions. If you're shy, feel free to email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. We're also live streaming over on Facebook uh, at Facebook dot com forward slash Ted Hart. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one. And today here on page one, we have the Education Resources Manager uh, from CFRE with us. Jeff Stranger is here. Uh, Jeff, bring us up to date on the CFRE Minute. Sure, Ted. It's great to be back with you. Um, some exciting things on. We're going to be at P New Orleans, and uh, Eva, our CEO, is going to be at the uh, Fundraising Institute in Australia. So she's out out and in for our deadline for the most recent or the most recent window for testing is April fifteenth, and that's the testing window from April fifteenth April 15th through June fifteenth. So a lot of exciting things going on. The last time I was on. Yeah, we Jeff, talked about the can practice. I, can I interrupt? Sure. Jeff, can I interrupt? I think you may uh, be calling in on Skype, and your internet is cutting in and out. We're getting about three words and then then a break. Uh, could I ask you to just uh, dial back in uh, to uh, to the show directly from a landline? Is that possible? Yeah, that's great. Sorry about that. Uh, no, that's no no problem at all. Three four seven 
324-3080. Just dial right back in. I'll grab you, and uh, we'll get uh, right to the CFRE minutes. Okay. All right. So uh, Jeff Stranger will uh, join us right back. We just want to make sure that everybody can hear uh, every word that uh, that he says um, because the CFRE minute is very important. I'll just take this opportunity to remind all of our listeners uh, that uh, the nonprofit coach believes that all nonprofit uh, fundraising executives should uh, sit voluntarily for the CFRE exam, uh, the showing that you have a common set of uh, principles, ethics, and uh, proficiency in fundraising um, is not only good for your career, but it's also good for the nonprofit organizations uh, that you serve. Um, so we do encourage all of our listeners that once you've met the criteria to sit for exam, uh, that you do um, uh, try to become certified by sort of, uh, the uh, Certified Fundraising Executives, which you can find more information, of course, at CFRE.org, and we will post that over on Facebook. I'm just uh, waiting for uh, Jeff to rejoin us here so that we can get the information uh, from CFRE. All right, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do is we're going to uh, uh, jump into our topic for today. Um, and when I see uh, 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 Jeff join us again, I'm sure that um, our fine guests uh, won't mind if we uh, uh, take a break and uh, fit Jeff in as soon as he's able to get on a landline. So we're going to run on over to uh, page two and then blend in page one uh, when Jeff is able to join us. So today we have not one, not two, but three experts uh, over here on page two that are all going to help us uh, with their immense expertise in working with boards of directors and strengthening boards of directors. And one thing that is as unique as every nonprofit organization is, the one thing that absolutely every single one of our listeners, every nonprofit that you serve have in common is that you have a board of directors. The question is, are they as strong as they should be? Are they as strong as they could be? And today we're going to find out how they, you can move from your current state of wherever your board may be uh, to a stronger board of directors that is working in collaboration uh, with their staff. And so uh, first up here, our first uh, expert today uh, is Mike Burns, who has over 20 years as a nonprofit manager. Uh, since 1994, Mike has been a partner and organizational development consultant uh, at BWB Solutions. Uh, his work focuses on strategic and business planning, nonprofit governance, and helping nonprofits assess their readiness for mergers. Uh, and he writes the blog, uh, which is definitely worth your time, Nonprofit Board Crisis. So, uh, Mike, just to let you know that I do see Jeff joining us back, so I'd li like to get your introduction in. Then we're going to quickly uh, just ask you to hold tight so we can get our CFRE minute in. But uh, let me welcome you, Mike Burns, here to the nonprofit coach. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Mike, so the first thing I'm going to ask of each of our guests is, uh, and as I said, we'll then take a, a quick minute uh, over with uh, CFRE and then come back and bring the rest of our guests into our conversation today, um, is on this topic, taking a deep dive into strengthening nonprofit boards, kind of weigh in or tee this up? What kind of discussion uh, can our listeners expect today um, as we get into uh, having three experts on this topic? 
So under the rubric, governance is not intuitive. We are not born understanding how to be boards. The uh, work that we have been doing in particular that brought us to, to you has been to understand how do folks who become board chairs or leaders in a board get to that place, and then once they get there, what do they do? And so uh, our research, which we've completed and now in a second stage, helps talk about that deeper, uh, and it all wraps around again to an understanding that it's just not intuitive to be a board member. That's, that's right, and extremely important because oftentimes uh, our board members almost become accidental board members uh, and then may become accidental leaders on the board. How can we help them make sure that they succeed? So Bern, uh, Mike Burns, thanks so much for teeing that up for us. We'll be bringing uh, Mary Halland and Stephen Nill into the conversation in just a second, but with the indulgence of our three experts, uh, we now uh, have uh, uh, we, we now have Jeff Stranger back here with us. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to hear every word. Uh, and let's go back into the CFRE minute. Welcome back, Jeff. Hey, Ted. How's it sound now? Uh, it sounds great. So thank you so much uh, for giving us another shot. Uh, bring us up to date on CFRE. No problem. So the uh, big things to remember, April 15th is the next uh, deadline uh, for registering for the test. Uh, the next testing window is April 15th through June 15th. Uh, we do, as a reminder, have our, our new practice exam that we rolled out mid last year, and that has been really uh, done very well, very much embraced by uh, people who are preparing for the exam. Uh, it's a great tool because you get to uh, take a practice exam. You can do many quizzes based on the, uh, the knowledge domains, and it's just a great way uh, to help kind of build your confidence going into the exam. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as you said, that's uh, that's a very popular way for folks to be uh, prepared. When would you say is is the time to be looking to take the practice practice exam uh, in advance of actually sitting for the exam? Is that something you do right in in advance of it, or practice a, a while before? Great question. There's a couple ways you can approach it. It is a subscription model, so you get 30 days to take it as many times as you like or you can subscribe for 90 days. So a great way to do it is, let's say you're six months out, you might want to subscribe, uh, take it, kind of get a sense of where you're weak, where you're strong, uh, use that next few months to prepare, uh, study in those different areas, and then resubscribe right before the exam and see just how well you've done uh, to make up any gaps that you might have. That's great. That's great. Well, while uh, we were uh, waiting for you to uh, to return, I shared – uh, with our listeners, just how important we think it is uh, for professionals to seek the certification and to uh, to sit for the exam. We've got a full topic today, but I do want to make sure that uh, uh, you complete any of the other updates that you have. Uh, the only other things is uh, we're out and about. We're going to be at the AFP New Orleans conference. Uh, we've got representation at the Fundraising Institute of Australia, a lot of other conferences that are going on. So uh, when you're out and about looking at uh, conferences and education, uh, look for us because we'll be there. Thank you, uh, Jeff Stranger, for being our guest here again on the Nonprofit Coach, and thank you for bringing us the update from CFRE. We're going to go right back uh, into uh, our page two uh, conversation here. Mike Burns is rejoining us, and, and Mike, uh, thank you so much uh, for teeing us up on that topic. I'd like to uh, next 
uh, bring in uh, Mary Holland. Mary Holland is here with us. She has over 40 years' experience with nonprofits. Mary understands firsthand nonprofit leaders' daily challenges. After 26 years as an executive and years of board service, Mary has consulted and coached nonprofits for 16 years. She is an author, a speaker, trainer, and researcher, and Mary helps nonprofit leaders apply research and knowledge in very practical ways uh, to the challenges that they face. Mary, we're just asking each of our guests today to sort of tee up this topic um, in terms of taking a deep dive into uh, strengthening nonprofit boards. What will we be covering today? What will you be sharing with us? Well, as Mike mentioned, Ted, and thank you for inviting us to be here, um, the importance, I think, of the leadership of the board is where we have focused our research uh, recently and our study on board chairs a year or so ago. And I think this is one of the most critical places that you need to strengthen your nonprofit board is in the leadership. The role of the board chair is critical, and certainly the people following behind or inadvertently ending up in leadership roles on the board. This is something we think uh, it's very important to be more intentional about, and we haven't been in the sector. And I think uh, putting a, a spotlight on that and gaining some knowledge through the research we've done, it's a beginning, um, will help our hope is that we will help nonprofits, both the board members, board leaders, and executives, be able to uh, raise the bar, frankly, for board leadership. That's terrific. That's a great uh, introduction to today. Our third speaker today, we promise not one, not two, but three experts to take a deep dive into strengthening nonprofit boards is Stephen Nill, uh, who is the founder of Charity Channel in 1992 as a means of connecting his nonprofit hospital chains fund development staff over the internet to their colleagues at other organizations. That first discussion uh, community grew into what is today the oldest and largest community of third sector professionals in the world, comprised of well over 100,000 participants worldwide. He has been working in the United States and the international third sector for more than four decades. Welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, Steve Nell. Great to be back, Ted. It's, uh, I always enjoy the show and I uh, I'm always always leave learning at least as much as I think I'm trying to get across. So <laughs> here we are. Well, we, we appreciate that. So just as we've asked our other two uh, guests, um, could you uh, sort of tee us up on this topic of a deep dive into strengthening nonprofit boards? Yeah, you know the the other two guests, Mike Burns and uh, and Mary Highland, um, both are uh, giving a lot to the sector by researching um, uh, and challenging assumptions. And I, I love that about them. I mean, they're actually asking questions that startle me just a little bit, such as, is the traditional model of the single-person board chair unrealistic? Um, and, you know, if we don't challenge assumptions, if we don't look at them, um, then we don't grow as a profession. And what I appreciate about them and I appreciate about the, um, uh, their work um, with the Alliance um, itself is that, they're taking a deep dive into these questions. And my role, at least the way I see my role as um, somebody who has a large practitioner community, not a research community, but a practitioner community in the nonprofit world, um, is to stay aware of that work and to share that work with the people in the trenches who could put it, 
you know, put it to work. And um, so often such great work just doesn't get out there adequately. And so if I can play a role, um, I'm not the researcher here. The other two are the experts. But if I can learn from them and then play a role in conveying that um, uh, the results of this uh, research and these studies, then that at the end of the day is where I want to put my time. So um, they're doing a great job, and I'm really pleased that you invited them aboard uh, your show. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have the three of you uh, here. So uh, the first question, I'm just going to throw this out and, and ask uh, uh, Mike or, or Mary or, or Steve to sort of weigh in on this. Is let's let's <laughs> let's focus as as uh, both Mike and, and Mary did uh, in their introductions today on the issue of leadership and board leadership, specifically the board chair. Uh, maybe again, we'll we'll do sort of a, you know one at a time here. Um, we'll go, ladies uh, first. Mary Highland, what is the role of the board chair? What is important, particularly for our audience, um, who are you know staff, senior staff, uh, junior staff members working at a board of directors, and 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 oftentimes where they run into conflict is because there is not a an under a common understanding of what is the role of the board chair. And sometimes answering that as what it's not helps us get to what is. So uh, Mary Highland, what is the role of the board chair? Well, I think the role is pretty comprehensive. Uh, I'm gonna answer it sort of with two dimensions. One is what do board chairs from our first study think their role is and what um, I have seen effective boards what the role of the board chair is. Um, First, of course, people see the board chair in just facilitating board meetings, which is not the most significant role, uh, as you might imagine. I think also the partnership with the executive, if there is one, that is where there really is a very critical role because we've seen and I've seen in other research that that relationship reflects back to the entire organization and can affect the engagement of the board, can affect, of course, the effectiveness of the executive. And so that role that the board chair has in partnering with the executive. And in our study, our first study, we found that boards do recognize that that is an important role. Um, One thing that has been out there a lot that didn't come up, and Mike, you can correct me if I'm misstating this, but there's uh, some board chairs out there that think their role is to be in charge of the executive. And we found uh, that while there's a little bit of that, uh, overall board chairs get it that that is not their job. But I think that's, that's an area where boards that aren't functioning well can fall down and the board chair can make a big mistake. So I think being a facilitative leader with the board, engaging people, engaging them to engage with the community and the stakeholders, and also building that partnership are two of the most critical that I see. Mm-hmm. And Mike, would, what would you like want to add to that? So I do want to add that, first of all, that uh, what Mary and I are talking about initially on our, our first study it was a study that was distributed to folks around the country uh, in something called snowballing research, where somebody said, hey, have you seen this link, uh, this, sur- this survey, and they pass it on, and so people keep passing it on. Out of that effort, 
uh, we got 635 board chairs, self-identified board chairs, who responded to our uh, relatively lengthy survey, not as lengthy as the next one that we're doing. But that first survey, uh, uh, again, we got responses from 635 uh, folks. And one of the things that I think to Mary's point about leadership is that chairs actually identified for themselves that a CEO mentor and coach role is uh, is one they value and that that does change the framing for this kind of what I think is often expected by the rest of the board as a supervisory role. No, the answer is more the mentor and coach. I should also qualify, however, that our research is descriptive. It's folks reporting on what they do. We have opinions about them as practitioners. We've been in the business, you know, as you noted, for 50, 60 years. Um, but, uh, and, and so we're cautious in saying every board chair should do Y or, or A. Uh, at the same time, what we can say is here's what boards think is right. And then as we match that up with what we think is effective, what we think is effective, we can verify that or affirm it. I should also say that right now, and probably part of the stimulus for this conversation, is that we are we have begun a second study. This study is not focused on board chairs as much as board vice chairs, where we said, hey, there's a big vacuum for understanding what the heck do those people do. Everybody thinks that right. they just sit there and fill the void once some chair is not present. Um, but we're learning that vice chairs do a whole lot more. And how do folks uh, become uh, uh, committee chairs and what happens to them? And then on top of that, we've added a little bit of stuff about this shared leadership concept. You know, is it is it heroic to just be the, the chair running the shop? Uh, and then a little bit more we added on diversity. And all those three topics, the general leaders, uh, diversity, and shared leadership is the focus of our next study, which is open. Folks can... Uh, can uh, use our uh, can Alliance for Nonprofit Management. Uh, Alliance for Nonprofit Management. There's a link in there, and and I should also note that you know we are uh, doing our work under the uh, sponsorship of the Alliance for Nonprofit Management. This is the we are members of the Governance Affinity Group, and that is a group of practitioners who all focus on the obviously as its name is the governance of nonprofit boards. So is this the uh, which is this the executive transition leadership continuity. Of no, those are the other people. On the website. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're just, they're a different group. They're a different. Okay, so this is Alliance for Nonprofit Management. Yep, and the Governance Affinity and, Group. Okay, Governance Affinity Group. Oh, there's governance. Yeah. Okay, governance. I'm just trying to find that uh, the survey. That yeah. Link. Post it over on uh, Facebook for uh, our listeners so that they can uh, participate in the study. Uh, yes, please. If, uh, if they would like. Ted, the URL is allianceonline.org, so it's not. If that's okay, helpful. Alliance. Yeah, I've got Allianceonline.org. Yep, I'm uh, just I'm over there right now, and I'm just looking for the the research itself, where that study can be found. It's uh, the hiding we can here send somewhere. Yeah, we'll send it to you if, uh, if it doesn't show up. We'll we'll get you a link. Yeah, it's not, not showing up. But anyway, I, I we're keenly interested in this research and um, what you've already learned and what the second study is uh, hopefully going to, to help us uh, learn 
but um, you know, going going back to this topic of uh, the the board chair, what are the the pitfalls um, uh, that that often nonprofits fall into? Because I think it comes back to um, what what all three of you really said in, the, in your sort of your opening remarks today, and that that is what I often refer to as sort of accidental leadership. It's sort of like yes. you know I was next in line or or I was the person, you know, who said yes, but now, yep. you know, how did I learn how to be a board chair? Did I ever learn to be a board chair? Because I, I you know, one of the things I often share with folks is I, you know, I've never run across a board of directors who truly wanted to destroy the organization that, that they were serving, but they <laughs> often right. can get themselves into other, there have been some boards that I've consulted with that I've questioned that statement. Um, yeah, I know. But, uh, but, but it, it really comes down to a misalignment between the expectations of, of roles, you know, where, where the, you know, the board is coming in and, and basically counting paper clips and looking over the shoulder of staff and questioning um, the, the management rather than understanding, I think, and this is sort of where I want to go, is what is the appropriate role of board members interacting with the chair and, and the chair interacting with, uh, with staff? How, what, what's the healthiest alignment that you that you've seen or that your your uh, your research supports? Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to let Mary answer that question, but pre- precede that answer with this set of statistics: 51% of the respondents did nothing to prepare for being the board chair. And we're not 82, surprised by that. No, we're not surprised, but it's 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 nice to see it solidly in writing. 82% said they got to be a board chair by chairing a board committee and and here is not surprising but but daunting 70% said that their their experience on being a board chair is based on the previous board chair right. so everything yep. they know about being a board chair so bad or good that's the kind of chair they are today that that should give everyone pause basically what we know is there's not a lot of preparation going on and that's beginning of what we need to do to change this situation. So, but Mary, you can say more. Well, uh, you know, I think that also reflects that to try and answer your question, Ted, there really is just our own personal experience because there really hasn't been research about any of these questions. Um, There was some that Yvonne Harrison did about the competencies of a board chair, but they asked executives primarily in that research about what they observed and what they wanted. So I think we have a long way to go to really learn the answers to these questions. Um, One thing that did come out was that when we we ask board chairs, what would you like to have? What would help you? This whole idea of mentoring and coaching. And we're seeing it in the board that this, when people can stay, which is a whole other issue, stay in their role for a while and be intentional about leadership development on the board because people getting into these positions, and we'll see more when we have the results of this second study, but people get into these positions haphazardly. And the board uh, leadership roles, you know, some people, I've seen it, some people kind of emerge 
as leaders in any organization, whether it's on the board or it's on the staff. And I think that is great when it happens. But often on boards, uh, it's about who's willing to do the work. And that is not really good, purposeful leadership development. Um, And I think that if if we can provide and, and help boards recognize that this mentorship, this coaching, I mean, where can, where can boards find that? Uh, it isn't out there for them. There's workshops, but that is not the same thing. And that is what people want. And when you, you know, when Mike mentioned that 70% are looking to the previous board chair, one thing we don't know is what are they learning from that board chair's behavior? That's is right. this good That's stuff right. or bad stuff? Um, and are we perpetuating bad practices bad in a practices, particular exactly. nonprofit? Yeah. Just, Mary, uh, just to um, jump in here. You and I had a conversation. Yeah, or Steve, one second. Just to jump in here, just to let our listeners know, yeah. over on Facebook, uh, we have uh, we have identified and found the second phase of the groundbreaking research on the leadership of boards by the Alliance's Governance Affinity Group and have posted that link. So anyone who would like to go there and and please participate in this study. But we've also posted the first phase report on voices of board chairs um, on Facebook as well at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. And I interrupted Steve Neal. Please go ahead. Not at all. That was uh, really uh, appreciated. Um, uh, I, I, one of the things that, that, that has been clear to me for quite some time, and, and I, you know, my background is um, I'm a tax exempt lawyer, and so um, I divided my time roughly between forming new nonprofits and trying to educate new board members on their role. Um, oftentimes, um, board members who have never served on a board. Uh, to the other half of my practice, uh, advising experience, so-called experienced boards, boards of, or, well, I should say the, the organization has experience, but the boards have varying levels of, of um, experience. There just has not been adequate opportunities for board members to really learn their roles. And for a while I thought, well, maybe one of the answers is to put out some books on it, and Charity Channel Press is has offered books. There are books put out by other publishers. And honestly, unless it's a very um, fast read, board members don't have the patience. Um, they're busy people uh, to, to read through that. And so I was fascinated. I had a conversation with Mary. She probably wouldn't bring it up herself, and I hope you don't mind, Mary, but um, not too long ago, a few, a few days ago, where y- you have an onboarding course where you're trying to, to train new board members on their role. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's really relevant to the conversation. Well, thank you for mentioning it, Steve. I don't want to be looking like I'm promoting anything, but I think uh, let me just talk about it from a a filling a need basis. Um, I did create an online course for board orientation. It's very basic and it's very accessible and it's not very long. And I, I have had it out there for about 18 months and the feedback is excellent so i'll just say that about it um if anybody's interested they can find me um but i think the key thing is that what i'm seeing 
is that when people get their hands on this, the feedback I've heard is experienced board members are saying, I'm learning things I never knew before. You know, I've been on a board a long time, and this is news to me. Um, I never knew my three legal duties. Um, and this is both encouraging that there's something out there now people can use, but it's also discouraging that it's validating over and over again that boards are not getting oriented to their roles and responsibilities. Seventy-five percent, and there's been, gosh, I don't know, maybe 300 board members who've gone through this program now, but in the initial pilot, 75 percent, 74, 75 percent said they had, when asked, have you ever had a formal orientation to your board role? Zero. Nada. Um, People are oriented to the role, what the nonprofit itself, our mission, our programs, but they're not oriented to what it means. And it falls to the executive to do that. And frankly, they don't feel very empowered to do that. And they're not, there's some messages they want board members to get that they don't feel comfortable delivering. So um, I think this whole idea of how do people learn how to be an effective board member, an effective board chair, uh, you know, what's the role of the vice chair? All those things are, are things that we all need to work on in the sector, doing a better job of helping. Well, that is, um, that is so true. And I, I, I tell you, I, I think back of some of the uh, boards that I've advised and in some parts of my practice and lots of attorneys who do what I do will tell you the same thing. Um, boards can get into serious trouble by simply being ignorant of what their just their legal duties not not just their governance duties um but their legal duties and and um i could you know if we had a long time i could give you some really interesting horror stories i wrote about a few of them on charity channel years ago but there is not adequate training and that's one of the reasons why i sort of spoke up mary you weren't going to do it yourself probably and you and i didn't talk about it before the show but mary is um putting to action what I think is needed. And we need more Marys out there who are willing to put on uh, onboard training for for the boards out there. And um, and I, I'm not sure, but she may have pretty much the only online training that I'm aware of in that area. But I'm sure someone else will speak up if they know of others. But we need more of these. Yeah, and, and part of well, uh, this, this, Ted, I just, I just wanted to jump in and just say, you know, part of the, the disconnect for a lot of nonprofit organizations is sort of the, the imbalance of power between, uh, you know, the executive director uh, who may or may not be skilled enough to sort of speak truth to power. So even when an executive sees problems, is the executive empowered to be able to work with the board chair or vice versa, where the board chair uh, may uh, see problems with the executive, but, but again, doesn't understand the role. So the collaboration between the two is extremely important. But if, as Mary said, if you base your leadership on prior leadership and that was creating um, a, a rift within the organization, chances are you're not going to make that better. You know, we yeah. um, uh, one of our members, uh, Deb Beck, who, who died last year um, but was uh, an integral part of this study, uh, her whole focus had been, uh, in general, had been on learning and how do we help adult learners learn and use the adult learning disciplines to do that. 
when we uh, asked the question in our survey about what are the most helpful sources of information for preparing to be a chair, uh, only uh, of the 49% who actually did something, only 42% of them used the Internet and 37 and 33% sub, uh, subsequently use either local workshops or purchase books. I, I think our, our challenge, of course, and the Internet should alleviate this, is the scaling of preparing people. But if, when, if we use uh, those scaling approach, scalable approaches, we have to think in terms of adult learning. We also have to recognize that maybe one of the messages, and, and, and the literature doesn't tend to do this, the, liter the, the, the methodology that we need to focus on most, I think our takeaway, is that it's all about team building and team management, that a chair is really a team leader. And, and so if we focus, we redirect, I mean, yes, there's content, right? There's the fiduciary responsibilities, there's strategy, there's, there's, there's stuff like this stuff, you know, but, but this question of how do I take what isn't, is not intuitive, what I'm not born to do, and give folks the core competencies to be able to then do it well, that's our challenge. And, and we have to find methodologies that are scalable. It used to be books once upon a time. That doesn't seem to be the answer for the moment, and Internet is only half the answer. Right. And, right. and Mike, I I'm, think I'm you're right. so right. It's ahead, all Mike. about relationships. You know, the content is helpful, but how it's used, how people interact with each other, how people lead is all about the dynamics in the boardroom. And I, I did want to add one other thing to the comment about the board chair executive relationship. We did find in the first study, and I think it was encouraging, that board chairs saw themselves as m more of a, a partner that when you looked at the balance of who's, who's stronger, who's weaker, that it was, um, for the most part, very balanced. And I think that was a very good sign. We do tend to make assumptions about things, and there's a lot of board bashing that goes on in the sector, and I think there were some very positive things that came out of that first study that reflected well on board chairs, even figuring it out on their own, doing the right thing. I wanted to reflect on something that Steve Nill said um, and, and ask you folks to sort of uh, respond uh, to this. In, in uh, uh, board retreats, and, and other interactions that, that I've had in consulting with nonprofit organizations, one of the things that I will often do with boards of directors is actually sit down and have a read of their bylaws. Um, and and I, I, what I've found is that very few boards of directors have ever read their bylaws. Um, what they are, feel that they're in compliance with their boards of directors is, is more sort of the historical way that the organization um, has worked in the past but not actually going back and understanding what is in the bylaws and are you in compliance. And my experience with a lot of boards of directors is that there is very little compliance with the bylaws that actually set out the governance structure and that as they grow in their understanding of the structure, they can understand where there may need to be changes because the organization has maybe outgrown parts of the, of the bylaws but also oftentimes the solutions that they're looking for 
can be found in the governing documents if they actually understood what they said. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you're so right. I Has mean, that been I, your I was making. What do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's. There, there's a lot of um, sort of uh, going along down the road, running board meetings the way we've always kind of run them, and things like bylaws or state-driven fiduciary duties, you know, the duty of loyalty, or IRS-driven duties to avoid, um, you know, uh, excess benefit transactions. Um, those kinds of things are completely, uh, for, for many boards, are completely invisible. And yeah. um, I know from my experience as a lawyer, you know, lawyers unfortunately tend to get called in either at the formation stage or when something really bad has happened, it's and right. um, and it's and in every case where something really bad has happened, there is usually a set of bylaws. To your point, Ted, that had they been adhered to correctly, would have um, would have done a, a a pretty good job of either avoiding the problem or um, remedying it once it occurred. But the boards weren't aware of them, and more you know, much less the the legal framework they operate under now. I don't think anyone expects boards to be tax-exempt attorneys, but you know there are fundamental principles that, even if you only know the principle, can guide you and at least alert you to when you might be heading into trouble and maybe need to get some specific advice. That's right. Well, I don't mean to be a contrarian here, but I will say that my experience is that <laughs> board members have read the bylaws and in in my experience, bylaws do not address the things that matter most in the boardroom. Um, okay. There are some that are way too big, way too long. Excuse me, uh, Steve, but they were obviously written by some attorney who just is <laughs> got to put everything in the kitchen sink in there, and they're too prescriptive. But that's the exception in my experience, and I usually do, as you said, Ted, it's a really great practice to read the bylaws for the organizations that you're working with. But, you know, I find that they say the officers, they say how often to meet, but they don't talk about rules of engagement, how do you relate to each other. Um, and they don't talk about leadership. They're about the structure. And, you know, we fall back on structure, I've found, when we don't, really trust each other and we evoke the rules when we can't figure it out together and it speaks more to what Mike said earlier about team building and I think that we're not uh, offering or, or paying enough attention there's there are some uh, good things out there about how to help boards be effective teams but again I think it's more about Yes, you've got to know the rules you're operating under, so I'm not minimizing that. But the things that really make the board effective are not about those rules. Yeah, I, yeah, I think... Yeah, I agree um, with you. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I think this question of onboarding is is now surfacing stronger. I think BoardSource has been talking about it more frequently. And I, I, I don't think that we have a formula, so-called formula, to make it right. And I do think bylaws have a role in board uh, in onboarding, but at very minimum, an onboarding activity is critical. And and folks, um, I, I consult with all the time who have 
never had an orientation or their orientation was welcome to the board. And and so it's right. no surprise that they know very little about what they should be doing or how to do it. Right. right. And well, they hold back say, for a long time and don't mm-hmm. contribute their skills, talents, and, and you know, their hearts even because they are waiting to figure out what the job is by watching others. Why by watching others and waiting for someone else who maybe is, is more senior. Yeah, and, and Mary, I, I want to say I, I, I agree with you, um, and maybe I misspoke. I, I think that having that, that concrete base of understanding what the structure is is how you then build the communication because that's a common set of rules that, that you know, everyone needs to understand because from that you may get your committee structure. From that you may understand what, you know, what the role of the officers are, the role of an executive uh, committee would be. But you're right. It's then about the board working together within that structure. Um, but I find that oftentimes one of the biggest compliance issues and, and therefore one of the biggest risks that a nonprofit carries is being out of compliance with their own rules, their own norms, and their own bylaws. Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's sort of a, a base to start with, but you're right. It doesn't answer all of the questions, and it doesn't get to effective governance, and it certainly doesn't get to effective relationship with staff. So that's sort of where I wanted to take this, uh, this discussion is what is the appropriate um, uh, uh, relationship between board and staff. What for all of our listeners today who feel that it's not working or it's really working well, from your research and from your experience, what is the best case? Who do you want to answer? <laughs> I, I want you all to answer. Uh, uh, we can let ladies go first, though. Mary, why don't you take this Well, question? that is a huge question that I don't know if there's been any research on. So, um I don't think there's a magic formula out there for that. I think that there's insight. You know, as we talked about the teams, I don't think there's governance nonprofit research about that, but there's other research about how we become an effective team. But that's different than your question. I think that the relationship is something that we know we do know that having a strong executive and a strong board in partnership is the best formula not a strong board and a weaker executive so it's the delicate dance in figuring out and and mike you you may want to speak to the work in the stages of the organization mike's done a lot of good work in that and written about it very eloquently that that role between the board chair and the executive may need to evolve as the organization is growing and it's going to change what the role of that board chair is just the way it changes what the role of that executive is and i think that the role with other staff is really something the board and executive work out together. But um, in in some of my individual research, I did learn that if the board feels the executive is pushing, keeping them away from the staff, really afraid for them to connect with the staff, the board begins to wonder why. So it's a delicate dance where the executive uh, the board doesn't have any business doing an end run around the executive, but they have to work something out so that the board understands what the other staff do and 
can respect the role of the executive, but at the same time doesn't have to feel that the executive has something to hide. Yeah, well, and, and Mary, Mike, if I can ask you to pick up one part of what Mary uh, just said, because so many boards of directors, I feel, become so focused, and, and rightfully so because they may be uh, supporting an organization in crisis or in change, but they become so focused on uh, sort of policy and budget, which of course are very important aspects of the board's work, that they almost lose sight of the mission of the organization and lose sight of the fact that the nonprofit itself is in service to a community. So sort of keeping, keeping all of that alive, which for a lot of board members is the original passion why they probably became involved, but then the weight of the, the, the data and the information becomes the drudgery of being a board member. So, so Mike, how, how do you keep that passion alive um, and, and keep that delicate balance that Mary is talking about between staff and board? So there's a lot, there's a lot buried in that question. Um, right. But let me, let me slice it in a f couple of different ways. So one, I actually have come after 35 years to the place that says the board has one employee that's the CEO or the exec or whatever we call them. I, I think that that relationship between that one employee, so that's to say they hire one person. That one person then, based on budget, hires all the other folks uh, or any folks. I, I, I think that stages of development matter when we talk about this because in an early stage nonprofit, there aren't any staff. The board have to pay attention to the operations. They pay attention to making it work. They open the doors. Uh, they act like the staff. And so they often don't get the bandwidth to be the staff and be the board, uh, to, the, to the positive and negatives that come with that. I think as they move along, they might hire a staff person to do the stuff they don't want to do. That's in their next stage. And then somewhere along the line, they're able to say, well, wait a minute, you know, we should divorce ourselves from this. But then there's always people who resist, and they've been so engulfed in the – and they didn't have term limits. So they've been so engulfed in the work that they don't ever really want to give it up. And that's where we always hear the stories about – board staff micromanagement stuff and all those issues and rightly so but but they have to go through that stage to be able to get to a final stage where everyone is clear about what role they want to play that that's a negotiated process but it's also a life stage so i think that's a that's one bucket of the stuff that we're we're referring to another bucket is they have one employee but that doesn't mean that uh, uh, key staff shouldn't be at board meetings to tell their stories and to tell the stories. Okay. Mission moment matters. And so uh, what, what our staff does and how they do it is, is as long as I'm not the operational person as a board member, I think I need to understand that when I go sell the organization. So that's, right. um, that's the quick and dirty perspective. I, yes. So, Steve, um, bring us back to there's also something that, that, uh, that, that Mary said early on in terms of how bylaws are written and who's writing them and, of course, probably legal counsel. And, and is, is there too much written into bylaws that stifle the ability for all of these players to work together? Y yes and no. Um, on the one hand, you know, we, I could speak certainly to the United States context especially, um, the legal framework for nonprofits is remarkably complex. Um, layers of law, at, you know, 
local, state, and federal levels, um, lots of case law, tons of statutes. And so a good set of bylaws is sensitive to the reality of the legal context. But on the other hand, lawyers by nature of their training are not necessarily governance experts. And I'm, I, for one, will raise my hand, especially in the early years. Um, it's just not something we're trained to do. We're trained to look at the law. And so something as obvious to us as providing a methodology for conducting a meeting, um, uh, we don't really examine. Um, Robert's Rules of Order is just routinely cited in, in a well, what, what's considered to be a good set of bylaws. And yet governance experts, maybe some on this call, will point out that maybe Robert's Rules isn't really the best way to govern a meeting, and yet there it is in the bylaws. And, um, and if it is uh, put in the bylaws, who's really adhering to it anyway? I mean, so we lawyers... Frankly, I think lawyers ought to be taking some of these on taking onboarding courses <laughs> themselves. It, right. it ought to be taught in law well, school. And, it's and not. Steve, Steve, you went right where um, I wanted you um, to go because Mary, is that part of the the underlying issue here? Is that the 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 governing document, the 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 legal structure of which the organization exists? Are, have traditionally been written by people who know legally what the structure should look like, but have not um, understood the practical nature of governing a nonprofit organization from that structure. Um, I don't think so because most bylaws don't have um, a lot of things in it that are directly and only related to governance. They do have the officers' roles. And I will say that, uh, Steve, you're a nonprofit attorney, but people really get into trouble when they, have, when they adopt some template from a corporate attorney. And where uh, what you say is true, Ted, that I've seen is where they have a description of the president of the board as the chief executive officer and it just confuses everyone about those roles. But the bylaws I've seen, nobody's really paying any attention to that. But those have been the exception rather um, than the rule. And I do, I do want to say something about Robert's Rules of Order. I had an experience with the board where they evoked Robert's Rules of Order and caused a huge split in the board. It was a call for the question. Uh, action and it shut down dialogue and it alienated half the board and they got up and walked out of the room. So there are real risks in being too rigid about these rules, these meeting rules. Um, there's another resource out there that I uh, recommend. It's not the only one I think nowadays, but it's called Roberta's Rules of Order. And okay. it's got some good meeting information strategies in it. And the gal who wrote it, um, Alice Cochran, is in the Bay Area. But anyway. Um, yes, Alice, uh, by the way, um, uh, had her, when her book first came out, I had the opportunity to read it and I wrote a review on it. Alice Collier Cochran. Very, uh, very good book. And actually, I started putting that into bylaws for a number of my clients over the years, and it's met with good success. Terrific. Uh, folks, we have five minutes left. Um, uh, obviously, this is a topic that uh, I think we need to uh, ask our producer to 
uh, let us come back because we've only start touched the surface, but I think provided a lot of very important information uh, for um, uh, for our listeners today. So very quickly, Mike Burns, uh, final words, final statement, and how can our listeners reach you? So take our survey. Tell your board chairs and leaders and everybody who's in a board that is in a committee or vice chair in particular, come take the survey. We need to hear from you. We want to hear from you, and we want to make another another aha set of, of uh, learnings. And so we need this to happen, and we're open for about a month and a half more to take the survey. So we want to encourage, tell everybody you know. Uh, you can get me on my website, bwbsolutions.com, and you can certainly go to my blog where I have fun pointing out where things are ridiculous in governance land. There you go. And Mary Highland, um, wrap up for us and how can our listeners reach you? Well, I would echo what Mike said. It is so important for us to get participation in this study. So please, please, please participate. Encourage people to participate. And I would say that boards are made up of well-meaning people. As you said in the beginning, Ted, they want to do the right thing. I think we as practitioners need to do more work to provide them the tools and resources they need and the support they need to do that. People can reach me at Highland, H-I-L, there's no G-H, H-I-L-A-N-D, consulting.org, or they can go to www talkwithmary.com. So uh, I'd look forward to hearing from people. And Mary, um, we have posted over, uh, and for Mike as well, we've posted over on facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Uh, we have posted the survey, uh, the first uh, phase report. And Mary, just for you, we've also posted Roberta's Rules of Order. Uh, so we've got that <laughs> over there. Well. Oh, also, uh, please uh, read the first report because there's insights in there that people need to know. That's right. Uh, Steve yeah, Hill uh, wraps up today. Your your wrap up, and how can our listeners reach you? Sure. Um, easiest way is just to go to our website, charitychannel.com, and go to the contact page and uh, drop me a note. I respond very promptly to those. Terrific, and thank you, Mike Burns, Mary Hyland, Steve Nill, for being our guests here on the Nonprofit Coach for our three experts taking a deep dive into strengthening nonprofits. And as our listeners heard today, a very intense uh, a topic, um, one that affects every single organization, every single executive, uh, and one that I hope we can have our experts back and uh, take another deep dive because there's a, a lot in that ocean that still needs to be addressed. That is our show for today. Thank you, my guests. Uh, we will catch you next time on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.